Please be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus and find chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 22 this morning. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22 will be our text today. And with the Word of God open, let's ask for His help this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would send Your Spirit to open our eyes, to unstop our ears, to soften our hearts. Help us to see the wonderful things contained about you and your Son here in your Word. We ask that you would speak. We long to hear from you. Would you strengthen us? We feel so weak sometimes. Would you encourage us? We feel so tired. And would you build us up in our most holy faith that we would be able to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel to which we've been called? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of works in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired Word. Most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with the name Corey ten Boom. Corey ten Boom was the Dutch watchmaker who hid Jewish people in her home from the Nazis during World War II. She and her family opened their home and used a secret room to hide Jewish people and members of the Dutch resistance. It is estimated that her family's efforts saved over 800 Jewish men women, and children from arrest and almost certain death. Corey was a Christian, as was her family, 
And while her efforts in helping the Jewish people and her faith during her time in concentration camps all give us reason to honor her, it was something that her sister, Bessie, said on her deathbed that bears repeating. As Bessie lay dying and Corey sat next to her, Bessie said to her, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. That's the sound of one who has been gripped by the gospel, gripped by the awesome majesty of God. Even in the, great, in the face of great danger, the Ten Boom family was courageous. When their father died shortly after their arrest, the Ten Boom women were brave. Even during a trial when Corey was ridiculed and mocked and scorned and threatened, she was courageous. And even on her deathbed, Bessie trusted the Lord. This is what it looks like to fear God and not man. And this morning, I want us to ask ourselves the question, whom do I fear? Whom do I fear? There are two kinds of fear that grip the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. There's the fear of man and the fear of the Lord. In this text, we see both Pharaoh and the Egyptians fearing man. The growing Israelite nation threatens them, and they are afraid. It tells us that they're in dread of them. And so they respond out of fear with oppression, lashing out, violence, hatred, and murder, all the things that mark the fear of man. But these two women, don't you love how Scripture uh, uh, emphasizes the courage of faithful women in the face of danger? Across the pages of Scripture we see this, from the women who stood at the feet of Jesus' cross when all of His disciples but a few had run away, the women who went to the tomb knowing that there would be guards there keeping an eye out for Jesus' followers, Ruth, Deborah, Shifra, and Pua. God uses these two women to show what the true fear of the Lord looks like, how one who fears the Lord lives in the face of threat and danger and persecution and even death. And so this morning, I want us to consider the fear of man as it's a lurking danger in the hearts of even Christians, and then to see the fear of the Lord as a right response to God's character and His promises. Look with me at the first few verses of this passage, uh, starting in verse 8, the fear of, of man. Now, you'll remember the context here. God's people had been sent down into Egypt by God. Joseph affirms this towards the end of his life. What you intended for evil, he says to his wicked brothers who had sold him into slavery, God planned this out. He intended it for good. So God's the one that sent them there. And we saw last week that God was the one that increased them greatly. He, was, he caused them to be fruitful and multiply. And so they've been saved from a famine brought into this land where there was food, they've multiplied from, number, uh, from 70 to a great number of people because of God's covenant faithfulness and blessing, and now we find them in trouble all of a sudden. In verse 8, everyone who had experienced the mercy and power of God in saving both the Egyptians and Israel had died. Don't forget that. God had not only saved his covenant people through Joseph, he had saved the Egyptians through Joseph as well. And that whole generation is gone, and there arose over Egypt a new king who did not know Joseph, and it's implied, did not know God. Do you see how little time it takes to forget God? 
Think about how great he had been to them. He saved them all from starvation and death, from annihilation. Through Joseph, his man, appointed by God to save the people, and in such a short period of time, he's totally forgotten. We're witnessing this in our own context today, aren't we? Not only is the notion that our country was founded upon the backs and sweat of those who loved the Lord and sought to worship Him in freedom, not only is that reality mocked, but those who continue to believe in the same Lord are derided as fanatics and extremists and a threat to our nation. In just a short period of time, it goes from God saving Egypt through Joseph to they all forget about God and Joseph and oppress God's people. It only takes a few years for people to forget God. And we should expect this from the world, shouldn't we? It's no surprise that those who don't love the Lord, who don't hold the Lord ever before their eyes, of course they forget Him. We would expect no less. You don't remember the winning, the winning score of teams that you don't care about very much, do you? But what about God's people? Surely we won't forget God, will we? Not after all he's done for us, right? Turn with me to Judges chapter 2. We're reading through Judges in our morning worship service. Uh, we're not today because at our 11 o'clock service will have a baptism. But Judges chapter 2, all the people of Israel have crossed over the Jordan River. Joshua has given them possession of the land they fail, it tells us in Judges chapter 1, to dispossess the land completely from the people. And then eventually we read Joshua dies. Judges chapter 2, beginning of verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, uh, the people of Israel each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. Here it is in verse 9. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. This is not a worldling's problem, is it, forgetting God? This is a perennial problem even for God's people. It only takes one generation of Christians who fail to teach their children or faithfully proclaim in their churches about the wonderful works of God before He is totally forgotten. A few weeks ago, we said that in the home is God's intended training ground for covenant children. That family worship where Ebenezer's of God's faithfulness are raised and remembered is how he intends for the next generation of Christians to, to, to grow in their fear and love of the Lord. But even in the church, it only takes a generation, doesn't it? Forgetting God is so common that no less than a dozen times in Deuteronomy, God tells the people, don't forget all that I've done, or more positively, he says, remember everything that I've done for you. And we're all prone to forget. 
We must work to remember, to remind ourselves and our children. In fact, think of this for a moment. When we gather for worship and confess our faith, as Jim led us in the recitation of the Nicene Creed, that was a moment where we together remind ourselves and each other of the wonderful works of God, of who He is and what He's done. Do you understand how important worship is for our souls to remind us of who God is. As each Lord's Day in the pastoral prayer, we rejoice in the work God is doing in the lives of our brothers and sisters who He's caring for and preserving in their time of need. Remembering, not forgetting the Lord is tremendously important, and we see here the consequence of forgetting. We have this generation of Egyptians who rise up and forget about God's saving work, and they don't remember Joseph And now their hearts melt within them because instead of viewing God's people as a blessing from God to the Egyptians, they view them as a threat and they grow in their fear of man. They become afraid of the people, it says in verse 12, that they were in dread of the people of Israel. They fear these men. They fear women giving birth to babies. They fear the children. They worry that they'll grow up to join forces with their enemies and destroy the Egyptians' kingdom. And so they burden them with slave labor. It tells us that they set taskmasters over them in verse 11 to afflict them with heavy burdens. They put them to work, in other words, so they won't have the energy to fight back if an enemy arises. Listen to how it summarizes uh, the way that the Israelites were dealt with. It says, that they, they had taskmasters, they were afflicted, they had heavy burdens in verse 11. Uh, verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people work as slaves, and they ruthlessly made them work as slaves, it said in verse 14. It's emphasizing how terrible their situation was. I wonder if it struck you how silly this response from the Egyptians is. Have you thought about that? We, we tend to focus on the fact that it was an awful response, I mean, the, the poor Israelites, they're enslaved. They're being abused and oppressed. Their lives are miserable, and that is terrible. But what a silly response on behalf of the Egyptians. What if the Egyptians had dealt kindly with them? Wouldn't they rather have had millions of, of Hebrews on their side should an enemy arise against them? Shouldn't they rather have treated them well and made friends with them that they might be partners together if an enemy threatened the kingdom of Egypt? Wouldn't that have made more sense to work shoulder to shoulder and hand in hand with their neighbors rather than oppressing them and warring against them? It's just silly that they dealt with them this way, but this is the illogic of sin. This is the illogic of sin. It sees an obvious and good solution, and it does the opposite. That's what sin does to us. It makes us foolish. It makes us fools. The fear of man, these Egyptians are afraid and they respond out of fear. They don't make wise choices. They don't make good decisions. They make foolish and illogical and wicked choices and bad decisions. And this is what the fear of man does to us. Think about this in your own life. It causes you to make foolish choices, doesn't it? to make bad decisions, to forget God and ignore His work in your life as though so far He's done good things, but maybe now He'll stop. Maybe in this situation He's not worth fearing or honoring or loving or obeying in this moment. And this is a problem for Christians, isn't it? 
And it all boils down to one thing. As one Christian counselor has said, it's when we make man big and God small. That's what it is. We're afraid of what's biggest. And when we make man big and God small, the fear of man rules our hearts and our minds. We maximize people. We maximize their opinions and the severity of our circumstances or our own sinful desires, and we minimize God and His providence and His goodness and His covenant faithfulness, His provision and His love and His power. And we fear man instead of God, and we make foolish choices. Now, I want to speak to our youth for a minute. I know there's maybe not many of you in here this morning at the nine o'clock hour, but there are some young people and college-age people and even children here. Now, I must say that this is not a problem um, exclusive to youth, is it? This is the struggle of, of all Christians. Men in the workplace with foul-mouthed co-workers feel the fear of man. And moms who worry what other moms will think of their kids or their home experience the fear of man. But for young people, there's a unique threat that faces you as you enter middle school and high school and go off to college or even prepare for marriage. The fear of man and the pressure of man will try to get you to compromise your faith. It'll make you think to yourself, I don't want to be rejected by the cool kids. I don't want to be thought of as weird. I don't want to miss out on making money. I don't want to miss out on love. And so you'll be tempted to date boys or girls who don't love Christ or the Reformed faith. You'll be tempted to work or play on the Sabbath instead of resting and delighting on, in God on His special day. You'll be tempted to laugh at jokes and point at people and agree with sexually distorted ideology all for the praise of your peers. You'll be tempted to compromise your faith to destroy your witness, to deny God and forget all about Him and all you've learned in church and in family worship and in God's Word. And it has a decaying effect on your soul when you fear man. It has a decaying effect, like a disease in your soul. Look at the text. What's the result of fearing man? What happens? It multiplies itself, doesn't it? It starts off, behold, there's a lot of people and they're many and mighty. So let's deal shrewdly with them. Well, let's put taskmasters over. Well, let's, let's oppress them with heavy burdens. Now we need to oppress them more because they're spreading and we're even more afraid now. And now we need to give them bitter lives and hard service and work ruthlessly over them and enslave them. Now we need to see if we can enlist other people to help us kill them. And when that doesn't work, we're just going to have to kill them ourselves. Do you see how it snowballs? how this fear of man grows and grows and grows in the heart of the Egyptians. It's the multiplication of sin. More and more fear means more and more rejection of God and His people and more and more sin. Pharaoh and his people are afraid. And so they're dragged further into sin. And that's what happens to us in our hearts as we let the fear of man rule. We are dragged further and further into sin one day, you're flirting with a pretty girl or looking at a good-looking boy at school because you want to be in a relationship, and suddenly you find yourself crossing the bounds of biblical sexual ethics. One day, you're afraid of being thought of as weird, so you laugh at a joke your coworker tells, and before long, you're excited to go to work to tell the dirty joke that you heard the other day to make your coworkers laugh with you. One day, life piles up, and the kids are complaining, and friends are coming over, and sports practices run late. 
And so family worship falls by the wayside, and the next thing you know, your family hasn't sat around with the Bible open in years. The fear of man is like a disease that eats away at your soul. It eats away at your fidelity to God and His Word. It eats away at your Christian testimony. And it eats away at your joy. The fear of man destroys joy in the Christian life. There's nothing better than to walk in faithful obedience to God. There's nothing better than to rejoice in His power and strength and salvation, in His goodness and providence and kindness. And when we forget Him because we make people big and circumstances big and God small, we lose all our joy in who He is as our sovereign Lord. Fear of anything but God destroys us. Watch what's going to happen to the Egyptians in the coming chapters. But there's another fear exhibited in this text, another fear that's commended to us as right and good and true, a fear that counters the fear of man, that helps us fight against the fear of man, and it's a fear that builds up. Watch what happens in the lives of these women rather than tearing down. Look at verses 15 and following. The fear of Pharaoh and the Egyptians has grown to the point that they're now enlisting help to kill the Israelites. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. Pause with me for a moment here. Let's just think about what's really being said by this Pharaoh. They are asking midwives to kill babies. Midwives, these are women whose lives were dedicated to the bringing forth of life safely into the world, whose purpose in life, their vocation, was to ensure the healthy delivery of children. And they're being asked not just to do something uh, uh, askew from what they might do, even perpendicular from what their heart's disposition is, but 180 degrees from their commitment and their passion. They're being asked to kill children. How insane must Pharaoh have been to ask midwives to kill babies? How sinful and wicked and hateful of God and His plan and His people must you be to command the murder of babies at the hands of those who are committed, duty-bound to protect them? Children made in God's image, denying them value and personhood and life. That sounds insane, doesn't it? No more insane, I might say, than denying that God has created man, male and female, after his own image. About as insane as saying that a woman could be a man or a man could be a woman or any number of things in between. How about as insane as saying that unborn children in the 21st century don't deserve to live because their mother or father doesn't want them or can't afford them or didn't plan for them or is too busy to be bothered with them. And who do we ask to do this job? The people whose lives are committed to protecting life. Well, these women, rather than fearing man, even the most powerful man in the world, they fear the Lord. It says it twice for emphasis. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt commanded. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them their own children. 
They feared the Lord. And so in the face of persecution, oppression, threats of death against the power of the most influential man in the land, they said, no, we love life. We care about God and His people. Where are the Sephoras and Puas today? It seems to me that our land is covered from shore to shore with little pharaohs instead. From coast to coast, denying God's will, His design, His authority, His truth, and hating His people for affirming His will, His design, His authority, and His truth. These women knew that God was in charge. They remembered. They remembered what He had done for their people in the past. They knew the promises He had made. They believed in the assurance that He would rescue His people one day. And more than that, more than simply knowing that God was in charge, this particular command to kill the children, because it had to do with children, I want us to think for a moment that there is a covenantal aspect to their act of disobedience. Their act of disobedience against Pharaoh's command to kill the children of God, the children to whom belong the promises of God, to whom God has said, I will be their God just like I am to their parents. Just like he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 7, verse 17, and I will be God to you and to your children after you. As they understood Pharaoh's design to destroy the covenant family of God, they were making a covenantally faithful choice to uphold the family of God by preserving the covenant line of Abraham and saving these baby boys. This is not mere trust in God. It's fidelity to God's covenant promises. They were honoring the covenant of God because they feared the God of the covenant. They knew that He would be faithful to them because that is His nature. And He had promised way back in Genesis 12 to bless those who bless God's people. And that's what these women did. You can hear echoes, I think, of Christ's words in Matthew chapter 10. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10? Don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He doesn't just leave it there, does he? He adds this for our encouragement. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. Aren't you worth more than a sparrow? Aren't you worth more than a sparrow? Perhaps these two women were on David's mind when he penned the words of Psalm 27, verse 1. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What's the result of fearing the Lord? We asked what the result is of fearing man. It's a descent further and further and further into sin further and further and further away from God. The illogic of sin takes over. Fear grows and wicked choices and foolish decisions are the result. What's the result of fearing the Lord? Look at verse 21. Well, let's look at verse 20. God dealt well with the midwives and the people 
multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. He gave them families. The blessing of the Lord is with those who fear him. As opposed to being dragged further and further down into the sin, these women are lifted up and up and exalted and blessed by God himself because they feared the Lord. I've got a little trivia question for you. Next time you're playing Bible trivia around the kitchen table with your family, I don't know how many of you do that. I imagine all of you do. These are fun Bible trivia questions. You might want to write this one down. It will guarantee you will win at the next family competition. What's the name of the king of Egypt in this text? I don't know. What's the name of the taskmasters? I don't know. What's the name of the women who are faithful to God? Sifra and Pua. The most powerful man in the world, his name is lost to the sands of time. All of the mighty men of Egypt who fought against the Israelites and killed their children, their names are lost to the sands of time. But these two obscure women whose job it was to help birthing mothers. We know who they are. Their names are memorialized for us in Scripture, aren't they? Those who fear the Lord are named by Him. Their names reside in the Lamb's book of life. They aren't left to fade into obscurity like Pharaoh and his people. But these two women bulwarks of faith in God, we know their names, don't we? And what's more, they're given families. Pharaoh, who knows what happened? I don't even know how many kids he had, how many wives he had, what his story was. But we know that these women have families. The Bible tells us explicitly that God now enters into covenant relationship with them and gives them families. And how less true is his promise to Abraham than it is to them. It's the same promise, isn't it? I'm going to be God to you and to your children after you. I want to put in, point out a bit of irony here as we wrap up our time in this text. Notice what Pharaoh says in verse 16 to the Hebrew midwives. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, you shall let her live. Jump down to verse 22. Now, because he hasn't been able to enlist the help of anybody else to do his dirty work, Pharaoh commands his own people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, throw him into the Nile, but let every daughter live. You know what the irony is there? Pharaoh thought he was pretty shrewd, didn't he? He thought he got him. I'm going to take care of this Hebrew problem by killing all the boys. It says, let us deal shrewdly with them, in verse 10, lest they multiply. Here's Pharaoh in all of his ancient Near Eastern brilliance. He's trying to win the fight. Uh, he's got the Hebrews right where he wants them. He's going to take care of the problem, kill all the boys. That'll solve it, won't it? The problem is that in the next chapter, 
God uses the daughters of the Hebrews to save, and even Pharaoh's own daughter, to save his appointed redeemer, Moses. Isn't that funny? Isn't it ironic that he let the daughters live, and one of those daughters marries a Levite man, and they have children, and then when it's time to expose him, her daughter follows him and goes up to Pharaoh's daughter to rescue him. And then that first daughter who birthed that little boy Moses gets to nurse him and bring him up in her own home until it's time to give him over to Pharaoh's daughter. How ironic that Pharaoh thought that he had a shrewd plan to destroy God's people, and the whole time God said, good, let the daughters live. I'll use them. You can't outsmart God, can you? You can't overpower him. You can't outrun him. You can't ignore him. You can't deny God. So why fear anyone else? Fear the Lord and experience his blessing like these two Hebrew midwives do. It's a big question. How do we fear the Lord? The author to, uh, of Ecclesiastes says it's the end of the matter. All has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God. Elsewhere, Moses says, fear the Lord, your God, you and your sons and your son's son, by keeping all His statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. In Proverbs, Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what's true knowledge? Christ tells us in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. In other words, fearing the Lord means knowing him. It means coming to grips with who God really is as he's revealed himself to us in scripture, his character, that he's holy, 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 that he's all-powerful, that He's everywhere and every when present, that He is just, that He's self-existent, that He's unchanging, that He's covenant-keeping, that He is love and light, and in Him we live and move and have our being. And as we apprehend the majesty and awesomeness of God, as we come to know Him more in fear of Him, we live in an awestruck awareness of how small we are and what great need we have of Him to overcome our sin. We come to see how beautiful the gospel is, don't we, when we fear the Lord. We see Him seated high and lifted up on His throne, and ourselves humbled and laid low. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. We can't save or rescue ourselves. And so we look to the one true God in knowledge of His salvation and in fear of His majesty to rescue us. And when we fear Him like this, we long to know Him more. When we catch a glimpse of His character and His power and His covenant fidelity, we long to know Him more and we pursue more of Him to see more of Him. And we find that He's most clearly revealed Himself to us through His Son, hasn't He? John tells us that Jesus has fully revealed and explained to us who the Father is. And the author to the Hebrew says, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. And what did he say to us in his son? What did God say to you through his son? He said, I love you. And I'm willing to forgive you. And to offer you eternal life. I'll make you mine. 
and I'll be yours forever. Believe in Jesus Christ and you'll have forgiveness and reconciliation and eternal life. In other words, the fear of the Lord leads to salvation. It leads to salvation. Fear God and come to know Him. And what does He want you to know? That He sent His Son to die for your sins. That's who He is. So who do you fear? Christian, what do you fear? Do you fear loneliness? Be careful. You might compromise and choose someone who will lead you away from Christ. Do you fear being laughed at or thought of as weird? Be careful. You might compromise and tell that joke or go to that party or say that thing just for popularity's sake. Do you fear being poor? Be careful. You might compromise and labor seven days of the week and fail to enjoy the rest of God on the Sabbath while you're busy storing up treasures here on earth. Instead, fear the Lord and keep His commandments. Love the Lord, as Moses says, with all your heart and soul and might and receive the blessing of the Lord as you walk in faithfulness to Him by the power of His Spirit. Fearing the Lord is the best thing we can do. It's the best thing we can do. In fearing Him, we come to know Him. And in knowing Him, we come to know His Son. And in knowing His Son, we find salvation from our sin and rest from our fears. Because if He is for us, not even Pharaoh can be against us. He's our mighty fortress, we sang this morning, didn't we? Our bulwark who never fails. So don't fear man. Don't fear circumstances. Fear God. Keep His commandments and trust in His Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your holy Word. We pray that You would give us hearts of faith and fear of You like these two Hebrew midwife women. Thank You for recording their names in Scripture throughout the ages that we might see an example of what it means to be faithful, even in a culture, in a country where life is not valued and where little pharaohs run around denying your power and your blessing and oppressing your people wickedly. We ask that you would fill us with a healthy, awestruck wonder of how big and great and good you are, that we might love your Son more and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he's called us by his own blood, in whose name we pray, amen.